morning, everybody. My name is Mike. I'm one of the pastors here. Thank you for coming and worshiping with us today. I was especially blessed by Constance's uh, video. I love the part where she said, I had $15, and so I prayed to God, and I'm thinking she's going to pray to God for money. What does she pray for? She prays for a job. I mean, isn't that just an amazing, wonderful thing? And, and God provides. So uh, we're uh, trying to get back to, to doing these videos again, and I know that was a blessing to me. Well, I wanted to uh, get started this morning by taking you back uh, to November of 1954. And in that particular uh, month, on a particular Sunday, a 41-year-old seamstress, she sat on a, a wooden pew in Montgomery, Alabama's Dexter Avenue Baptist Church, and she listened to a sermon that was entitled, The Transformed Nonconformist. And in that particular sermon, uh, a newly installed passionate young pastor by the name of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., he said these words. He said, the Christian is called upon not to be like a thermometer conforming to the temperature of his society, but rather he must be like a thermostat serving to transform the temperature of that society. And then he added these words. He said, I have seen many people who sincerely oppose segregation, but they never took a stand against it because of fear of standing alone. And then he issued this challenge. Are you willing not just to stand, but to stand alone? Now, fast forward 12 months, December 1st, 1955. After a long day of work, now the 42-year-old seamstress, a woman by the name of Rosa Parks, she boarded the, the Cleveland Avenue bus, and she took a seat near, near the middle of the bus, right behind the section of the bus that was reserved for white people. And at the next stop, uh, more and more people got onto the bus uh, so as that, that the entire white section was filled, and there was one elderly gentleman, or elderly white man, who needed a seat, and the bus driver ordered uh, the blacks that were sitting behind the white section to stand up and get in the back of the bus. And the seamstress, she politely refused. With the, with the challenge of Dr. King's sermon from a year prior uh, resonating in her mind and her unwavering trust in Jesus uh, bolstering her resolve. Now, within a few blocks... She would pay the price for taking a stand, or should I say, staying in her seat. She would be arrested. She would be charged and convicted with disorderly conduct under a state statute. She will be fined. She was fined $14, which doesn't seem like a whole lot of money uh, today. But back then, $14 was the equivalent of $155. And little did she know that her single act of courage would serve as a catalyst for what became known as the, the Montgomery Bus Boycott, which ultimately helped launch the Civil Rights Movement, which culminated in the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the Voting Rights Act of 1965. And I would imagine that Rosa Parks didn't wake up that morning on December 1st 1955, and think, today I am going to help catalyze a movement that transforms the futures of countless black men, women, and children for the rest of time. And she couldn't have possibly imagined that she would be considered a heroine in American history, that her likeness would be on a U.S. postage stamp, that she would receive uh, the Congressional Gold Medal, that her story would be written in history books and, and produced in video documentaries, and she certainly would have never thought that she would be the intro to a sermon at a church in central Pennsylvania 
in February of 2023. But that is what happens when God takes the obedience of ordinary people and uses it to accomplish his extraordinary purposes. That's what happens. He takes uh, people from the pages of Scripture, like Noah and Abram and and Rahab and Ruth and Peter and and James and Mary Magdalene. He takes people like like you and me who who love him and who love his people and who love his, his word. And through his providence, he accomplishes the extraordinary. And that's what I want to show you this morning as we continue our study through uh, the Old Testament book of Esther. If you have a Bible with you today or a Bible app, uh, we're heading to uh, Esther chapter 4. If uh, you don't have a Bible with you or a Bible app on your phone, there's Bibles uh, around the room. You'll find Esther chapter 4 on those provided Bibles on page 412. And uh, we're going to read the entirety of the chapter uh, Unlike Mike Vongo, where he just, uh, he's going to go through the whole chapter, but he has you just read a couple of verses, and then you can sit down and be comfortable. I'm going to make you stand through the entire thing. So uh, if you could stand in honor of God's word, would you please do so? Esther chapter 4. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city, and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. And he went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province, in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes." And when Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther called (coughs) Hatak, one of the king's eunuchs, who had been appointed to attend to her and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. And Hatak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate, and Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of the money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews." Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction that he might show it to Esther and explain to her and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of the people. And Hatak went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Hatak and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king these 30 days. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said, Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all of the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. And Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, and hold a fast on my behalf, and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. And my young women will also fast as you do. And then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. And Mordecai went away and did everything that Esther had ordered him. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Now, a few weeks ago when I was uh, sharing with you uh, about the, the book of Esther, I told you that the overarching theme of Esther 
is God is always at work, even when it seems that he is not at work. And I said if we lose sight of, of that overarching theme, that, that what will happen is we'll, we'll fall into a trap making this narrative nothing more than, than a collection of moral teachings. This narrative will, will suddenly become a bunch of do these things and don't do that. And as such, what we need to understand is Esther chapter 4, it's not about become courageous like Esther. It is not about don't cause problems like Mordecai. It is not about don't be a prideful jerk like Haman. And it is not about don't be a disgusting misogynist like the king. This is what it's about. Esther 4 is about the God of the universe using ordinary people and somewhat messed up people, people who, who are a lot like me and people who are a lot like you, and using those people to accomplish his extraordinary purposes. So with that said, let's get started. I have three simple observations that I want to glean from the text today that I believe supports the big idea. And in this chapter, we're going to see that God is at work in the midst of the overwhelming anguish of unconstrained evil. That, that when you are struggling and you are overwhelmed by the evil in the world, God is at work. Secondly, God is at work in the midst of the blinding ignorance of comfortable compromise. That second point is going to be a hard one. Let me just warn you right now. You, can, you might want to like sneak out at some point. Number three, God is at work in the potential peril of courageous confrontation. So let's just kind of break these down here this morning. We left off uh, last weekend with Haman the, the Agagagagagite that Mike Bongo taught us, and King Ashuharis enjoying, no doubt, uh, an India pale ale together. Pause for laughter, it says in my message. I knew the word IP, I didn't even know what it stood for. I had to look that up. Many of you already knew what that stood for. But uh, they're, they're together, they're having a drink together, uh, and they're, they're celebrating the king's decree that was sent out with instructions throughout all of his provinces to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Ador, Adar, to plunder their goods. And now, you got to remember, the reason why this happened, the reason why this decree got sent out was because Haman the Agagite was angry at, at Mordecai the Jew because Mordecai would not bow down to him. But rather than, than simply punish Mordecai for his unwillingness to, to show honor, Haman, in, in what can only be described as a massive overreaction, convinces the king to decree throughout all of his kingdom that all the Jews be killed and all their possessions plundered. And as news of this edict reaches the Jews throughout the kingdom, folks, there is bedlam. There's fasting, mourning, weeping, and lamenting with uh, many of the Jewish people. They're, they're, they're tearing their clothes. Uh, they're covering themselves with, with ashes as a visible sign of their grief. And, and among the grieving Jews in the capital city of Susa is Mordecai, the man who caused it all. And he's in the city, and he is grieving publicly, and he's covered with sackcloth. He's poured ashes over him. He's making these loud and bitter cries. And folks, what he is, is he is a spectacle 
because he is a government official. That's what is meant in Esther chapter 221 when it says Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. He was a representative, although a low-level employee, he's a representative of the government, and he is basically embarrassing himself as far as people are concerned, and he's embarrassing the king by being out in public mourning like this. Now, I want you to notice something that Mordecai does not do. It's Mordecai's unwillingness to bow down to Haman that, that causes all these problems, right? But notice, Mordecai doesn't look at the consequences of what he's just done and, and think to himself, maybe I should go and apologize to Haman. Maybe I can turn all of this stuff around. Nor does he use his influence, although it's limited, to, to get an audience with the king to try to change all of this stuff that has been unleashed. Instead, what does he do? He grieves with the balance of the Jews. And I've got to believe that Mordecai's grief was greater than that of any other Jew because he's the one who got this whole thing in motion. It was his refusal to bow down to Haman that unleashed this evil. And, and isn't that how things typically happen in the world? Despite what our individualistic culture believes, our actions be they good or be they bad, they don't just affect us. Our actions affect lots of other people. When we sin, not only do we experience the consequences of our own sin, but so does our family, our church family, our friends, and sometimes people we don't even know. And we get this. Ask anyone whose spouse has been unfaithful or whose parent consistently mismanaged their money or whose child is an addict or, or whose sibling ha has broken the law and been arrested or, or whose employer is corrupt and they will tell you the consequences of sin don't just affect the sinner. They affect everyone else. There, there are scores of people sitting in this room right now who, who are a product of a divorced mom and dad or an absent dad or an absent mom. And you know that, 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 that the sin of mom and dad didn't just affect them. It's affected you. And I got to believe that, that for some of us, it's not only affected us, it's, it's affected our kids and if we're old enough, it, it may not have just affected us and our kids, but it may ultimately have affected our kids' kids. Because sin has this way of just moving out and spreading out. Yet similarly, when we stand for the truth, the consequences of doing so not only affect us, they affect our family and they affect our church family. And when the painful consequences of our sin or standing for the truth begin to impact other people, regardless of whether we've done good or whether we've done bad, if it's affecting other people and it's hurting other people, we, like Mordecai, we should grieve the Bible has a term for this. It's called lament. Kathy mentioned it in her prayer. There's an entire book in the Bible called Lamentations. And you and I, we would actually do really well to read it. For it reminds us that in the midst of the pain, in the midst of the struggle, in the midst of the heartache, even when God is absent or seeming so, that he is actually at work moving behind the scenes to redeem his people, 
to bless his people, but most importantly, for him to ultimately get glory. And so when we find ourselves like the Jews of Esther's day, experiencing overwhelming sorrow in the midst of unconstrained evil, it's okay to grieve. However, we also need to temper that grief with the words of Roman 8, which says this, if God is for us, who in the world can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is to condemn Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate you and me from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? For I am sure That neither death nor life, neither angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. May you and I never forget that God is always at work, even in the midst of of our suffering. Now what I find interesting at this point is this. Throughout the entire kingdom, all the Jews are grieving save one. All the Jews are aware of of the edict. All the Jews know that that in, in about 11 months they're done except for one. There is one Jew who has hidden her identity. There is one Jew who is living in the palace. There is one Jew who is not fearing for her life. There is one Jew who is oblivious to all that is happening. Her name is is Esther, and she's the queen. Look again at verse 4. When Esther's young woman and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. And what we're going to see here is the blinding ignorance of comfortable compromise, folks. Esther has no clue what is happening until her servants come in and tell her about Mordecai. And at this point, no one in the palace is aware of this relationship between Esther and Mordecai. And nobody knows that she's a Jew. All that Esther knows at this point is that her cousin Mordecai, he is causing a spectacle. He's making a scene. She doesn't know about the king's edict. She's unaware that the Jews are mourning throughout the vast kingdom. Now, notice what she does. She deals with the symptom rather than the problem. She doesn't ask, why is Mordecai mourning? Instead, what does she do? She sends the dude a change of clothes. And isn't that how many of us operate? We look for quick, feel-good, easy fixes rather than taking the time to understand the underlying problem. And we do so more times than not because in reality, 
we're isolated from the problem. And it's at this point where I'm going to take the risk of offending quite a few people. But it's a risk that I think that needs to be taken. You see, the vast majority of us, me standing in the front of the line, spend much of our lives living in the isolation of comfort. Even the poorest among us live in relatively comfortable circumstances in comparison to the balance of the world. I got to believe, maybe I'm wrong, but I got to believe that in this room right now, there's not a single one of us who were wondering where we're going to get our next meal from. I believe every one of us knows where we're going to sleep tonight. And the next week or two, probably every one of us in the, in the room other than the young people are going to receive a paycheck or a retirement distribution or an SSI payment or a deposit to our PA access card. Most of us who are here today, we came in some kind of vehicle. Might have been our own car, might have been the church van, but probably not a single one of us walked unless we actually wanted to walk. We have ready access to health care, even if it's the, the free clinic down on, on 17th Street. We've got mobile phones, big screen televisions, the internet, and the list goes on and on. And as such... Most of us see the world's problems at arm's length. We hear about the crisis on the southern border, but do we really actually care enough to figure out what in the world is causing it to occur, or do we simply parrot the talking points of our favorite news anchor our favorite politician, our favorite talk show host. We, we see homeless men and women begging for food at the malls that we go to and the shopping places that we go to. But do we, we really ask ourselves, why are they there? Instead, what do we think? We think to ourselves, if I give this person money, what are they going to do with it? We read about the violence in our city. And for some members of our church family, it's not, not the violence of our city, it's the violence of their street. And we pontificate about Black Lives Matters, or Blue Lives Matters, or limiting gun ownership, or protecting gun ownership. And our schools are struggling, and our marriages are struggling, and our kids are struggling, and our economy is struggling, and, and in many cases, the church is hemorrhaging people, and sadly, many of us just want the problems to go away so that we can just go back to our comfortable lives. And brothers and sisters, there's times that that's me. I just want to turn a blind eye to all that's going on. And I believe that's where Esther was. She, she certainly cared about Mordecai, but she couldn't risk being seen by him. So she sends him some clothes, hoping that that's going to solve the problem. But it didn't. Why? Because Mordecai is uncooperative. He sends the clothes back. He, he won't wear them. Now this is a problem for Esther. She's got to find out what's happening because she knows the king is not going to put up with this. 
He's not going to put up with his government official making a scene out in the streets. Because in some play, if you remember from the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah came and he was what sad before the king. He could have got killed for being sad before the king. So, so this is what's going on in this culture at this time. So she's got to find out what's happening because Mordecai could, could have, he could die for what he's doing. So she sends this guy by the name of Haytak. And Haytak's job is to get the facts. So look at what happens. Verse 5, then Esther called Haytak, one of the king's eunuchs, who had been appointed to attend to her and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what was going on and why it was. And Haytak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the city's gate. And Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. And Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. And for the next few hours, Haytack is playing the telephone game. He's going out into the square, talking to Mordecai, taking the information back, going to Esther. Esther hears what's going on. She tells him, go say this. He's moving back and forth and back and forth. And in the process, Esther learns about Haman's plot and about the bribe money that he had paid to the king. Now, she is informed but she is still having the benefit of living with comfortable compromise. How so? The entire time, she's been hiding her Jewish identity. And in order to do that, in order to hide who she was, she, she is violating countless commands that God has placed upon the Jews. She's violating dietary laws, She's not celebrating feasts. She's not attending synagogue. She's not offering sacrifices. She has compromised her Judaism in order to continue to serve as the queen. Now, some of you will say she has no choice that she got placed into the harem, that she no doubt was forced to at least initially sleep with a king, and I get that, and I understand that. But the fact remains the same. She is able to avoid this overwhelming anguish of unconstrained evil of her Jewish brothers and sisters because she possesses the benefit of comfortable compromise. But there is something that happens in the passage that we just read that changes all of that. And I'm wondering if, if anybody actually caught it. Because I didn't until the other day. I was watching a, a sermon by Alistair Begg on, on Esther chapter 4 while I was there. It wasn't why I was listening to it, but I was at the gym. And he pointed out something I had never thought of. But oh, it makes so much sense. At the end of verse 8, there is a three-letter feminine possessive pronoun, her, that completely outs Esther. Mordecai also gave Hadak a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for the destruction that he might show it to Esther and explain to her and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and to plead with him on behalf of her people. Who's Hadak? He's one of the king's eunuchs. What's he doing? He's the liaison between these two people. And what does he learn at the end of verse 8? Holy vey, the queen is a Jew. For years, Esther has hidden the fact that she's Jewish. 
now Hatak, the king's eunuch, who's been appointed to Esther, knows her secret. And it's not going to remain a secret for very long. And this brings us to the third and final way that we see God at work. And that is that he's at work in the midst of the potential peril of courageous confrontation. Look again at verses 11, 9 through 11. And Hatak went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Hatak and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and all the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes into the king's inner chamber without being called, there is but one law to be put to death except the one whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king these 30 days. Esther is now fully aware of the situation. And now she knows that she actually has to do something about it. But knowing that we must do something and actually doing that thing are two different stories, especially at the cost of potential peril. So what's the problem? First, no one, including the queen, is allowed to go in and, and be with the king in the inner court unless they've been summoned by the king. And, and that, you read that at first, that seems kind of harsh. But he's the king of the largest kingdom at that point in time. It went from Africa to, to India. And, and so we, we actually get this because what? 124 miles from here. Only 124 miles, right down the road actually. There's a white building surrounded by a, a large fence, and, and there are men and women in that building. They've got some serious firepower. It's called the White House. It's the residence of the President of the United States, the most powerful individual on the face of the planet. And you and I aren't getting into that place without an invitation. If we decided one day that, that, that let's just go see what's going on, we show up at the door, we climb over the fence, bad things are going to happen. Some of you are old enough. This is not in the sermon, but it's a, what's, oh, we got plenty of time. <laughs> Some of you are old enough to remember 60 Minutes, because it's still on right now. But 60 Minutes had a guy by the name of Andy Rooney. I don't know if you remember Andy or not, but, but back in like the early 90s, Andy Rooney decided that he wanted to see what Camp David was like. So he, he took some folks, uh, uh, you know, Camp David's just right down the road. It's right off of 15. You're actually just in the mountains. To, you're heading south on 15. It's right on the right over the Maryland border. So Andy Rooney shows up with a, with a television truck and, and comes to the gate at Camp David, okay? The next thing that happens, the Marines come from the, everywhere. I mean, it's like I couldn't believe how many people. They got guns. They're throwing Andy Rooney to the ground. Andy Rooney, I can remember when he's doing the commentary, he goes, this was not one of my better ideas. <laughs> I, I, I tried to find, I wanted to show you a clip of it. I tried to, I, I can't find a clip. I sw scoured YouTube for it, but it wasn't there. Well, the same is true for King Ashuerus. Like President Biden, he's got to be protected. But that's only half of Esther's problem. Because Esther says something. She says that, that she hasn't been with the king. In other words, she hasn't been intimate with the king for the last 30 days. Now, given the fact that the king has a harem, I have to believe Bashuaris has not been alone in his bed for the last 30 days. So Esther's got to be asking herself, have I fallen out of the good graces of the king? 
Am I going to experience the, the same rejection that Vashti experienced? And now, all of this plays into Esther's unwillingness to, to honor Mordecai's request. And it all gets communicated by the way of Hatak. And here's Mordecai's reply, 12 through 14. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. And then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you'll escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise from the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house, you will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. The situation is dire. And Mordecai is not about to take no for an answer. So he pushes back and he reminds Esther that, that she is not even safe, not even in the king's palace because Hadak is already aware that she's a Jew. And all he has to do is, is share that information in the palace. And, and, and all of her deceit and deception, it's going to be completely exposed. But Mordecai does something else. Without making reference to God, he reminds Esther that the Jews will be saved regardless. And she can choose responsibility and risk death and be engaged in saving them, or she can choose passivity and die nonetheless. And then he says something that every one of us who claim the name of Jesus should not only remember, but ultimately live by. He says, and who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. I'm wondering, have you ever asked yourself, why has God placed me here, in this place, in this time, in the midst of this community, in the midst of this city, in the midst of these people? Why, why do I, have you asked yourself, why do I have the job that I do? Or why am I at this church? Or why do I live in the neighborhood that I live? Why has God given me these parents or these siblings, or this spouse, or, or these kids, or this boyfriend, or girlfriend, or these friends? Why has God allowed me to experience the things that I've experienced, both the good and the bad, both the pleasant and the unpleasant, both the things I'm proud of and the things that I regret? Why has God allowed that to happen to me? Why am I here at this moment of time, in this place where I reside? In Acts 17, 26, Paul reminds the people living in the city of Athens, and he reminds us this. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him. That he's actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your poets have said. For we indeed are his offspring. We are where we are. We're with the people who we are with. Experiencing the things that we are experiencing. Because God has providentially placed you and I here at this moment in time in history. And we have a job to do. And it's at this point that Esther finally gets it. It's here where she discovers that although there's potential peril in the midst of courage or courageous confrontation, uh, or per, per, I can't even do my own little alliteration here, Potential peril in the midst of courageous confrontation that the alternative to passivity is even more dangerous. And so she replies to Mordecai. And then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa 
and hold a fast on my behalf and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. And then I'll go to the king, though it's against the law. If I perish, I perish. And Mordecai then went away and did everything that Esther had ordered him. Now something changes here. And I wonder if you notice it. Up to this point, through the first four chapters, Esther has been the one taking instructions. She hasn't had a voice. Everything has pretty much been been done to her. And for the most part, she's been passive, but no longer. She's now taking responsibility for herself and for her people. So much so that she has decided that she is going to enter into the king's palace or presence uninvited. And she will plead the case of her people, trusting that God will use the obedience of ordinary people to accomplish the extraordinary. And if in the process the king fails to raise his golden scepter to receive her, she will perish. Esther has now found her voice. And she has found her purpose. And if it costs her her life, it costs her her life. But this is not the only account in the Bible where an individual approaches a king on behalf of their people. Some 2,000 years ago, there was a man named Jesus. Fully man, fully God. He'd come to this earth for one primary purpose. To save a a wayward, broken, self-centered, immoral, prideful, obstinate people from the eternal, deathly consequences of their sin and to restore them to a right relationship with the God of the universe. And he knew that in order to accomplish this mission that he would experience the overwhelming anguish of of uncontrolled evil. And he knew that, that it would demand that he leave the comfort of his heavenly home so that he could experience the same pain and suffering of those whom he came to save. And he knew that it would involve great peril that would require great courage. And for three years... He shares the the love of God and the truth of God with any and all who would listen and even with those who wouldn't listen. He was a man of love and grace and mercy and truth and courage. And in the third and final year of his ministry, the time had come for him to approach the king in order to save his people. And in the early morning hours of that day, Jesus, he drops to his knees and he prayerfully cries out through tears of blood that if there is any way that he can avoid the the pain of this encounter, let it be so. And yet he ends his prayer by declaring, not my will, but your will be done. And then he approaches the king on behalf of, of his people. But on that day, the king did not raise his golden scepter. And Jesus died, not on the floor of a palace, but on the cross of Calvary. But his death was not in vain. For by his stripes, you and I have been saved. And his death was not permanent. For three days later, he arose again, took his seat at the right hand of God the Father, where he lives and reigns to this day. And he is calling out to you, and he's calling out to me, take my yoke upon you. 
and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. You see, God is always at work, even when it seems that he isn't. And God takes the obedience of ordinary people and uses it to accomplish the extraordinary. Let's pray. Lord God, we come before you now. We recognize that you are the holy God of the universe. We realize, Heavenly Father, that that we have no chance of standing in your presence on our own power. Lord, we thank you that your son Jesus took upon himself the just penalty for all of our sins. Lord, that he died in our place. And Lord, that he gave us his righteousness so that we can come before you clothed in his shed blood, forgiven. Lord God, for those who who are here at this place, at this day, who who have received you in faith, Heavenly Father, I pray that, that today again we would be overwhelmed by that. That, Lord God, the fact that, that your son would come and die on our behalf so that we might live, Lord, would, would buoy our spirits that would raise us out of our lethargy, that Heavenly Father would heal our depression and our sadness, Lord, that would move us to, to leave our comfort and, and look to see how we can be used by you for the good of this world. Lord, may, may we be re-energized by the renewal of the fact that, that we are saved by his shed blood. And Lord, for those who are in this place, who at this time are are trying their hardest to figure out a way to be accepted by you on their own method, I pray, Heavenly Father, that Lord, that today's message from Esther, Lord God, would open to their eyes to the fact that you are holy and we are not. And that apart from you, Lord, we can do nothing. That we are condemned to a, a, a life without eternal life removed from your presence without the shed blood of Jesus. Lord, for those who've yet to come and know you, Heavenly Father, would you, through the power of your Spirit, draw them to yourself. Drive them, Heavenly Father, uh, to bend the knee of their heart, Heavenly Father, and cry out, for Lord, I am a sinner, I am unworthy, I need your Son, I receive him. Transform my life. Do that, Heavenly Father, in this day and in this place. And Lord, now as we prepare for this offering, Lord God, would you use these resources which are are given here, which are given online, which come in the mail, Heavenly Father, would you use them for, for your glory and for your kingdom? Heavenly Father, may we never squander these resources on ourselves. Lord, help us to be a generous people. We love you, and we thank you for your Son. And all God's people said, amen.